Here we are, off and running, January the 15th, lecture discussion number uh, 267 on the Book of Romans. I mentioned to the class here just a few minutes ago, pay attention to this 70-nation Paris-Palestinian-Israel state. I don't know what to call it other than uh, it uh, likely is not going to end well for the nation of Israel. At this point, I don't have anything to add to that other than it's very important that we pay attention to it. It's an extraordinary time to be watching the nation of Israel. I um, I got this from, just to add to this, I got this from Mark from Texas, sent me a, a report that the top embryologists at Harvard and Brown universities have figured out that you can make a human being out of sperm and somatic cells now. Skin cells, if you wish. Body cells. Somatic cells in the body. So embryology, I can barely say it, is becoming uh, extraordinarily, uh, I don't even know how, what to, how to describe it. I'll read this quote. With science and medicine hurtling toward or hurtling forward at breakneck speed, the rapid transformation of reproductive and regenerative medicine will surprise us. So. Um, I don't have really enough time to do it today, but uh, they have successfully taken somatic cells and, and uh, uh, injection of sperm and created a mouse embryo that could reproduce a healthy mouse. And what this will mean is, is that they're, they're touting it is by saying this. If we have a woman, for example, that has lost her reproductive capability because of a medical issue, typically it would be um, um, uh, chemotherapy. They can now take her cell structure, her skin cells, and combine it with uh, a male gamete, and uh, gamete, whichever you prefer, and produce a child. It, Babies are going to be made, this is what it says, babies made without mothers will come sooner than we think, leading scientists warn after study discovered how to make embryos from skin cells. This technological advancement, and again, let me reproduce, science and medicine hurtling forward at breakneck speed. That's happening in our lifetime. That is exactly the book of Daniel. He says this is what's going to happen at the end of the age. And as you know, I have said many times that this is not new. This technological advancement has occurred before. It occurred at Genesis 6, and it occurred at Genesis 19. You can make the case that it was also part of the Tower of Babel, or the uh, Ziggurat of Babel. Anyway, just keep your eyes on these kinds of things as well, because uh, um, they are examples that the end of the age of the Gentiles is coming to a close, which means we, we can't, I, I keep saying it, we live in a time that n- we could not imagine. Okay, and thank you, uh, Mark, for all of that. They, uh, um, every time I say Mark or James, everybody panics around here, but today I think that was reasonably interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Last Sunday, during the parenthesis, which is the period between the closing prayer and the time it takes me to get to the buffet line. And sometimes I have obstacles, but not always. The, but anyway, in this case, the other Daniel, as is his oftentimes proclivity, came with a substantive, a substantive uh, question concerning the patterns of the weeks or the sevens 
and the reconciliations uh, that are required whenever you're dealing with the patterns of the sevens. Now, this is particularly applicable because we have found ourselves in Daniel and Revelation, which are awash in sevens. There's sevens everywhere there. We can't avoid the seven patterns. And so it's important to understand them. I don't uh, deny that. And I should interject uh, that only the other Daniel knows which Daniel is the other Daniel. Uh, do not concern yourselves with trying to identify the specific other Daniel who is to blame for this. Now, that requires a observational frame of reference. Both other Daniels share a penchant for asking questions that most people would describe as tedious. I would not describe it that way. I, I see these kinds of questions as critical of the utmost importance. Left to my own devices, I would fill every Sunday lecture uh, with wearisome, copious details. Oh, wait. Thank you for laughing. A very few of you uh, will recognize Daniel's question as the subject of March 1998. Who was here in March 1998? Don't raise your hand. Bill and Bonnie. Pretty easy. Maybe Christopher. This is the subject of March 1998 lecture series that I did at beautiful downtown Cliffside, which is neither beautiful, it's not downtown, it's not on a cliff, but imagine the disappointment of the people who call for weddings, which I think is very funny. That's kind of my odd way of approaching things. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) they hear beautiful downtown Cliffside and they say, is your facility available? Oh yeah, it is. (laughs) <laughs> and we go from there. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's really, uh, eventually I'll be punished for all of this. I, I took this subject of the sevens on 19 years ago, much to the dismay of that congregation. Do you remember that? You will in a minute. Uh, when Bill and Bonnie start running for the door, uh, you'll know what happened. The, the congregation of that time, uh, what, how can I describe their universal reaction, uh, I would say to you, horrified, or revulsion. That's the ones that comes first to mind, to, to say the least. This series of lectures were poorly received, uh, and I quickly punted. I abandoned the topic to avoid the brewing mass insurgencies, sedition. But today, we're going to try it again. It is the other Daniel's fault. And the reason I'm trying it Uh, is that you folks are far more uh, intelligent and attractive and talented than those uh, Neanderthalic Luddites of 20 years ago who shall be remain unidentified. (laughs) So I can avoid the prospects of civil litigation again. (sighs) Cliffside Legal Defense Authority. Anyway, at its essence, the issues of the sevens, the weeks, when you see sevens in the Bible... Okay, know that it's also called weeks, or it's just called sevens. So you don't really know how long it is, you just know that it has a seven quality to it. Start teaching yourself to approach it that way. The essence of the issues of the sevens and the integration thereof is is this going to be laborious, it's going to be severe, it requires a tremendous allocation of time and repetition and terminology, attention to detail, the typical cliffside sermon, in other words. So I understand what I'm getting into better than you would ever imagine, but this time, and we don't have a whole lot of time doing it, but we're currently 
being that we're stuck in the cement at Revelation 17. So I'm just going to throw some things at the dry erase board to give everyone a general idea. And uh, if you can figure out which other Daniel did it, you can take it up with him. So here's how we start this. There is, without argument, a seven-day creation period. There is no argument. Now, they'll argue over how long it is, but there is no argument that it is identified in the Bible as a seven-day period. And the Bible, the wording of it, it can't be argued either. You have to discount the literal uh, view that is overwhelmingly presented. So we have a seven-day creation period upon which God establishes a series of clocks. And that in itself is a two-month subject trying to figure out why he did things and how he did them. You do it, you, it's in integrated, I'm sorry, it is intrinsically buried inside our lives. A day, for example, is defined in scripture as sundown to sun up. That's Hebrew reckoning, timekeeping, Hebrew timekeeping. So one day is sundown to sun up. Now some cultures begin their day at sun up, and some, you know, uh, reckon from midnight to midnight. But God, in Genesis 1-5, let me read it to you. So the evening and the morning were the first day. God reckons, or he calculates a day, from evening to morning, or sundown to sunup. And note that order, evening before morning. That's why when you get into figuring out what happened during the crucifixion week, you have to read each gospel account and find out, is it talking about Hebrew time, which is sundown to sunup, or is it talking about Roman time, which is not? So what time things happened uh, have to be established. And this seven-day creation week is the template of Scripture, the template of Scripture, let me say clearly. By that I mean it's everywhere. The seven-day creation week is everywhere in the Bible. It's constantly referred to. It is said, and I, I think said correctly, that all sevens that you will find in all of the Bible return to this first seven-day period. I'll give you an example of that. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath, at its core is a memorial to his day of rest. So every time the Jew has a Sabbath observance, he is going all the way back to the creation week. I don't have it on the board, but he's going all the way to the back, pointing as if it's there. Uh, Don't ask me why. Probably some kind of pre-onset Alzheimer's, which means I need more aspartame and aluminum poisoning to fight that off. Once again, it's working. <laughs> I should tell the audience on the Internet, you should see the faces of the people when I say aspartame and aluminum poisoning. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, it cheers me up every time, I have to say. <laughs> okay, where was I? The fourth commandment is a memorial. What does he say about the fourth commandment? What does he want you to do? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Which day is he talking about? He's talking about his Sabbath day. Remember my Sabbath day, which was the first one in Genesis. It is the seventh one. Those who understand that this commandment corresponds to his seventh day, that that in itself is a foundation block of wisdom. Remember the day that I rested. That's what he says in the fourth commandment. Remember that day. Why? Why rest at all? 
Why did God rest? And why did he rest on the seventh day? If he were, had my structure, he would work a couple of days, take a day off. But he does not. He goes six days, seventh day is the day of rest. Remember that I did that. That's what he says. That's a commandment. The whole of the Bible now goes about answering the question of why did he rest on the seventh day and why does he rest at all? All sevens return to the first seven. And I will assume that all of you know that a month is determined by one full lunar cycle. Uh, full moon to full moon. That's how we get a month. It's not exactly 30 days, 29 days and change. So we have to make corrections. But a, a, a month is based on, a, cal- a calendar month is based on a full moon to full moon uh, cycle. And one year is the time it takes the earth to orbit the sun. So that's how we determine what a year is and how we determine what a month is. And most, most Bible scholars have decided that God began his year at the spring equinox. And though there's some disagreement about that, but basically most the consensus and always be suspicious of anyone who says consensus. There should never be consensus, right? But uh, spring begins on the vernal equinox. So let me put it on the board for you. Spring begins now, vernal equinox. Uh, fall. No, I'm sorry, I'll just go in order, won't I? Summer begins on the solstice, the longest day. Fall begins on the fall equinox. I know this is winter, winter solstice, right? That seems simple, but that's been going on for thousands of years. Somebody sat down and said, this is how we determine these four seasons. I I believe this is third grade science, so... uh, uh, we'll just leave that there. But in Alaska, we think winter begins in late July, just uh, sometimes, mostly in September. The point is, is that God is utilizing these uh, these events. Now, this is an Earth orbit sun event, and he is utilizing them. He made the Earth orbit the sun. He made the sun. He decided how long it would take. And he established this this math. So begin to ask yourself, why did he do it the way he's done it? Try to think his thoughts after him. He utilizes these times, these beginnings, if you will. He has a plan. We can figure it out. We can reason out his thoughts. And once we know the pattern, template, the sevens, we have a lot now to deal with. Now, let's go ahead and just take on a few sevens. I put this on because... ah, I was dropped a lot. In my youth, I fell a lot. In my youth, or so my brother said. (laughs) To this day, I always give the younger brother more chocolate than the older brother of the grandchildren. It's just what I did today. (laughs) Okay. Let's just try a seven. Satan is cast down to the earth. You know that. Revelation 12, right? Satan 
capstone. That is after the war in the angelic realm, Revelation 12, we've been studying that. And I've said to you that I believe that Satan is cast down to the earth at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. So I have a seven-year tribulation, and Satan is cast down at the midpoint. Remember that for the past few weeks? So we've established that. But now, Satan is not, this is not the only time Satan has been cast down to the dust. What's the other time he's been cast down to the dust? Satan was cast down to the dust. Cast down. Genesis 3. 2. Palms. Satan is cast down. One, of course, is inside of a seven year, or inside of a seven. Now, how many never raise your hands? How many never raise your hands? Think that the two castings of Satan, the two times Satan is thrown to the earth are unrelated or a coincidence. Of course you don't think that. They're obviously not. So now if the second one occurs in a seven, what am I going to think of the first one? I'm going to ask, did it occur in a seven? If the first time he was thrown down to the earth is at the midpoint of a seven, what am I going to ask about the, I'm sorry, the second time he's thrown down to the earth is at the midpoint of a seven? I'm going to, I'm going to extend that to the first time. Is he thrown down? Extrapolate. I'm going to say, was he thrown down at, at the midpoint of a seven at the first time? In other words, are they so directly mathematically related that I can make those kind of inferences? So the question becomes, how long did the trial of Adam and Eve take? Every time I ask that question in this kind of context, everybody goes, huh, what? How do you leap from Satan being thrown down to how long did the trial of Adam and Eve take? Well, I'm trying to determine the exact day. Can I figure out what day Satan was cast down in Genesis 3? And I think I can. Now, I also think that's very valuable to know because all sevens return to the first seven. And this is a seven. If this is a seven, this trial, then that's very close to the first seven. Genesis 1 to Genesis 3. So I want to know. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the, of the woman is everywhere in Scripture. It's underneath. You may be reading something and not even know that Genesis 3.15 is underneath it. So this becomes very important. I believe I will present that as long as I can. I recognize that people think that I am too focused on nuances. But it is who I am. Sorry. Not really. Fake sorry. Haven't said that for a while. So rephrase, was the trial and sentencing of Adam and Eve a seven-day event or a seven? doesn't have to be uh, seven days or a week. It could be a seven. Was it a seven? And if this is the case, at what point in the trial, and it is a trial, does Satan's judgment, his condemnation occur? Genesis 3.14, when he is cast to the dust, thrown down to the earth. What day or what, what period, what... What point did that happen? The trial begins at Genesis 3.8, in my opinion, and concludes at Genesis 3.24. Put that on the board for the benefit of the 
studio audience. Is that a small twin looking child? Which one is it? Do you know? It is Natalie, huh? Wow. What happened to Julia? Oh, down under. So you brought them here and no one knows until now. There's two of them. Multiplication of the family units are starting to be extensive, exponential, as you would say. Okay, where was I? Trial begins at 3.8 Genesis, concludes at 3.24 Genesis, and the serpent is sentenced first. The woman second, the man third. The serpent is denied mercy. He's cast to the dust. Why? He's given a death sentence, which implies that what he has done is a capital offense, doesn't it? A capital crime. So who was murdered there? And if you cannot uh, decide that somebody was murdered, let me put it this way. Uh, if an attempted murder was the, was the result, who was the primary target? Who was the serpent trying to kill? Was he trying to kill Eve? Was that his primary target? I suggest to you it was not. He was utilizing or he was using Eve as a means to kill his primary target, which I think is clearly the second king of Eden. The king of the organic Eden versus the king of the mineral Eden. Notice that Satan has access to the organic Eden. Wouldn't, don't you find that surprising? He was removed from the mineral Eden. The earth is changed into an organic structure. And Satan is at the location of Eden. Why does he have access? All of that needs to be considered. But today, just let's focus on the duration. How many days did this trial take? Jesus Christ God himself in the flesh comes to the garden, Genesis 3, 8, calls out to the man with that incredible question, where are you? Think about how complicated that question is. That is not a simple question. He is not talking about physical location. He is talking about something else. Where are you now? And the man and the woman confess. Now, everyone thinks that they're blaming. They're not. They're confessing. You read that as a confession there. It clearly is. And there is no record. I know it's a confession. How do I know? They receive mercy. So you have to revisit that and see how it, in fact, is a tremendous statement of guilt. Everything they do has got guilt everywhere on it. There is, however, no record of Satan's confession. And Jesus God, Jesus Christ, deliberates now once he hears the answers to his questions. Um, And Jesus then passes judgment and Satan is cast down for the first time. And man and woman, however, receive blood coverings. So that is, what is that? When you get a blood covering from God, how you doing? That's good news, isn't it? Man and woman are driven out and a flaming sword is placed as a barrier. How long did that take? I am telling you today that I think that it was a seven. Now, 
all sevens go back to the creation seven. So I'm going to be able to take my position and see if it will fit over the template of the creation seven. That is how I arrive at the position that it is, in fact, a seven. Now, next, just throw a couple of more out there. Jacob, who is also who? Israel. Jacob, Israel. And Laban. Remember who Laban is? Uh, he decides that he's going to work for Laban. And Laban deceives Jacob. He gives him Leah instead of Rachel. And this is called in Scripture the time of the troubling of Jacob. That's what the Jews call it. Jacob's troubling. That, I hope triggers you. The time uh, and the time of Jacob's trouble is seven days. I know there's another seven years of labor. But Laban says to Jacob, you take Leah, you fulfill the seven-day Jewish wedding ceremony. There's another seven. You fulfill that, and I'll give you Rachel. And Jacob works another seven years after he has Rachel. So he has Rachel, but he still has another seven years. I believe that's how it uh, how uh, Genesis uh, 29 is structured. We'll get to that as time goes by. But this is the time of Jacob's troubling. And that sign, the time of Jacob's troubling happens to be a seven. And therefore, I want to know, does it have a midpoint? What happens at the midpoint? The Jewish wedding pattern is identical in design to this. The bride is with the groom for seven days in the wedding chapel, which has been prepared by the groom and the father of the bridegroom. So the father of the bridegroom and the bridegroom prepare a chapel in which the bridegroom takes his bride and is there for seven days. John 14:3. I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he's talking about. Christ, when he says that, is talking to Israel, talking to the, uh, his church, saying that all who are saved are in a wedding ceremony symbolism. He is treating us as if we are uh, a bride. We're not a bride. Israel is not a wife, but he has got this symbolism uh, overshadowing all of this. And so you have to recognize this. And in that symbolism, in the Jewish wedding pattern, which applies to Israel uh, foremost, but to us as well, is that there is this period of time where the groom and the father build a chapel and the chapel and the groom and the bride are together for seven days. And now I have a best man. A best man actually is called the friend of the bridegroom and he waits outside the door of this chapel in which the groom and the bride, the bridegroom and the bride are there. And the friend waits for something. Do you know what he waits for? I hope you do. He's waiting for the proof of innocence. Don't make me be more specific. This is a family oriented program. Let me read it to you. John. 329. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom 
who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John the Baptist is saying that he is the friend of the bridegroom. So he is the one who will stand outside of the wedding chapel for a seven waiting for the proof of the innocence. John the Baptist, again, fulfilled the role of the friend. And the friend receives the red linen that proves the innocence of the bride and brings it before the assembled guests who then rejoice greatly. So what a whole whole bunch of questions now, right? Who are the assembled guests? Who is the friend of the bridegroom? Compare that now to the seven years of the abducted bride that is with Christ. So compare the wedding pattern, the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, to the abducted bride, which is the church, and ask the obvious question. Questions. When was the evidence of the bride's innocence given? Or if you prefer, at what point in the seven-year period does the friend receive the linen? Because at the judgment seat of Christ, if you have the... If you have the uh, premillennial view, the literal view in my version. So here I'm, look at all these sevens I'm putting up. You have to keep track. I won't label them. But this one will be the judgment seat of Christ. Over here, this is the Jewish wedding ceremony. Not to be confused, but to be known, the Jewish wedding ceremony is overall the Hebrew. Uh, over all of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, which is a 12-step ceremony for the Jewish wedding ceremony or wedding system. has this seven system in it. This would be Genesis 3. And this would be Revelation 12. So far, we just have those four. four. But all of them return to Genesis 1. So far, so good. Every one of you are still awake. That is fantastic. Already proving your intellectual capacity and your character and your holiness compared to those other people who by now were throwing things and running for the exit. Bill and Bonnie don't remember, I'm sure, and if they did, they would remember it differently for me because I took the brunt of it. They would come up to me after this lecture and go, I don't care about this. I am not interested. Do something interesting. That's the truth. And I went, wow, cool. Good thing I thought of this as a profession. I seem to be really equipped for it. (laughs) Okay. I have the judgment seat of Christ, which is a seven. And at some point in that seven years, it's seven years, what is going on at the same time the judgment seat of Christ is going on? What is synchronous, if you will? The tribulational period is is exactly, they are day for day, hour for hour, week for week, year for year, one on top of the other. So while the church is up here, or the bride is up here, down here is a completely different uh, situation. So, what point in that seven years of the judgment seat of the bride is Satan cast down? Well, if it's, if it's simultaneous to the tribulation, it has to be the midpoint. Does that make sense, I hope? So here's another question. 
when does the consummation begin? The friend stands outside the chapel waiting for the proof. When does the proof become available? Then, next question, when does he get it? Because they're not the same. Remember, the judgment seat of Christ for the consummation of the marriage of the, to, to the bride that has been abducted takes seven years. So how much time elapses before the linen is brought outside of the chapel? In the Jewish wedding system, on what day is the consummation? It's on the first day. The first day would correspond then to the first year. But again, at what point is the proof made available? When is Satan cast down? He cast down after the third day, three and a half days, three and a half years in the midpoint of the tribulation, so we can solve that. And Satan's accusations are now ended. What was he doing? He was accusing the bride of something, right? The bride has come with the bridegroom. They are going into the chapel, and they may even, in fact, be in the chapel. The bride could be um, recused, if you will, from the event, but it may not be. We all might be in there somewhat together. Remember, this is symbolism and not literal. He is using the pattern of a wedding chapel, a bridegroom and a bride, a linen. He's using that pattern to uh, demonstrate a theological truth. What is that theological truth? Satan is accusing the bride of something. And what would he be doing that? What, what would his specific accusion, uh, accusation be? Certainly the objection would include a charge of impurity, wouldn't you see? We do it today. Is there anybody in this? Uh, I don't do it anymore because I don't like the problems. But occasionally I have uh, included it because the bride and the bridegroom's families wish for it to be included. And that is the question that is in all the movies. Is anyone present here object to this ceremony? Well, Satan clearly objects. And his accusations, his objection is based on what? It's a charge of impurity. It's a charge of uncleanliness. It's a charge of defilement. Filth. That, that certainly has to be on the, on the table. That is what he's doing. He is saying that the bride is unworthy to be the bride. And if the bride cannot be the bride, then what is the bride? We are the bride, which means what are we? Unsaved. Because the ceremony is a, is a, has a salvific, there's that word again, context. He's doing that and or at simultaneously, probably, I believe it's an or, and, or I'm sorry, I believe it's an and, not an or. He would be saying that the bride is arbitrarily selected. The system, therefore, has inequity. It's unjust. The system is a lie. Now, back up to the trial of Eve. At the trial of Eve, the woman confesses, Genesis 3.13, Christ asks, omniscient God asks the woman, omniscient God, Jesus Christ, knows all things. Why does he ask the question? Does he need, is he going, I wonder what, I wonder what she's thinking? No. Clearly the reason he asked the woman a question is to afford her the opportunity to admit her guilt. No record of Satan's confession. Which means that he did not. 
The Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? Genesis 3.13. He knows what she's done. Duh, duh, duh. Stop it. She responds, the serpent deceived me. Is that true? Did she tell the truth? She told the truth. The The serpent deceived her. And I ate. Is that true? She did not lie. People condemn her for not lying. What do you want her to do? Do you really want her to stand in front of omniscient God and lie to him? Because that's the only thing she could say that would be the truth. You come up with something else that would be truer than what she said. And if it's less true, then what do we got? She made no attempt to deceive God. She said, the serpent deceived me absolutely true. In other words, I'm deceived. Let me put it in my commentary the way I always describe it when I teach high school because they love this. Uh, I say that she, has said, she said essentially, I am stupid and I poisoned myself. That's what she did. How's she doing? Good. Adam, however, was not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. That's the key difference. He, the, that detail must be accounted for whenever this trial is studied. All conclusions that you have on Genesis 3.9-24 have to comply, must comply. Cannot ignore 1 Timothy 2.14. I can't tell you how many letters I get that say to me, I never considered 1 Timothy 2.14 when I studied Genesis 3. You can't ever do it correctly apart. They must both be there. Anyway, what do you suppose Satan accused Eve of at this trial? Eve's on trial. Do you think Satan, who is raising accusations here... Do you think he raised accusations here? Is Satan consistently accusing? What do you think he said? Remember, of course, Eve came from the pierced side of the first Adam, right? The word does not mean rib, it means side. P-S-E-L-A, sela means side. God opened the side of Adam, reached in, and builded Eve out of the side of Adam. The bride, the church, comes from the pierced side of Christ, the last Adam. Both of them, the first Adam, the last Adam, have the bride, their bride, come out of their side. Eve is a picture, a type, a complete picture, if you will, of the bride. And Eve believed the lie that Satan told about the character of God. She believed it. She was deceived by Satan. And she believed it. And that's what she means by I ate. I believed. He deceived me and I believed him. And I proved I believed him with a physical act. I ate. Mental properties and physical properties. Satan says that God lies. Satan told Eve, God lies and therefore God is evil. Because if you lie, you're evil. Now all we're talking about is how much time and how much evil are you. And Eve believed it. The the serpent lied to me and I proved that I believed it because I ate. Is now an admittance that the woman was aware that the lie was a lie because she called it a lie. 
She said, the, the serpent deceived me, which means the serpent lied. She accuses, doesn't accuse, states a fact. The serpent lied. That is a huge distance. Can you see how far she has traveled? This is an important piece of information because the world today believes that God is, uh, read anything, you go to any movie, go, go on and go anywhere. The world today says the God of the Bible is capricious, he's unjust, he's arbitrary, he's vindictive, he's rash, and all of that is a lie. All of it is a lie. And they believe it. I've talked to them. I used to talk to them. They don't want to talk to me much anymore. But they really believe that God is evil. Uh, they say to me, we will never worship a God that will allow all of these people to be killed in whatever event they have. He's evil. What they say. They believe it. And all again, all of that is a lie. God is pure. He is his goodness, om- omnibenevolence, pure goodness, all goodness, all holiness, always. But the world doesn't believe that. The world is not going to disbelieve it either. I have the Bible to tell me that. They will not repent of that belief. They will adhere to it. They will cling to the lie that God is a liar. They will call the truth a lie. And they will call the lie the truth. And God ultimately, in the first trial of Adam and Eve, that has this characteristic in it, Eve does not do that. She and Adam do the opposite of it. And and what he does, he covers Adam and Eve in blood. He gives them garments of blood, coverings of blood. He establishes his method of salvation, of cleansing of sin. And consider the discussion of this. Adam would want to know why you're doing this. Everybody assumes wrongly that this incredible human being, the first Adam, with this amazing intellectual capacity, is the dumbest man that ever lived. I'll show you the dumbest man. I know him. I'm kidding. I know somebody that should be identified as such. I'll get into that later. Um, But Adam would want to know why you're doing this. There would be a discussion. There would be a process. Adam would ask questions. That's the kind of intelligence he had. An intelligence that has never been equal. You can bring me Solomon, maybe. I might... uh, concede some part of that. But Adam, extraordinary. He would want to know the meaning. As would Eve. Adam is the namer. Adam names. Adam is the one who names. And he names the woman the mother of all the living. Incredible wisdom when he does that. And with that as our backdrop, that's our substrate uh, with the sevens. Probably... The most studied of all the sevens in the Bible is the crucifixion week, uh, which also is the Passover week. Those are both sevens. The seven months of the seven feasts. I have seven feasts and they're inside of seven months, so I have a seven inside of a seven. I have the seven days of Jericho, another seven. All sevens will go back to the first seven, and I will tell you, this is the second seven And you can begin to lay them on top of each other and see how they fit together. See how they explain each other. The seven-year famine of Joseph. There's there's seven 1,000-year periods. Again, all of those return to the creation seven. The great Sabbath to be remembered. Remember my first resting time. 
There's seven parables of Christ. There's seven churches of Revelation. I go on and on and on. There's the Jubilees or seven sevens. Uh, and 77 is 490 years. We'll end up studying 490 year periods. There's four of them in history. Many others. Just take the burning of the unclean garment. The garment, if it's found to be unclean by the priest, he, he sets it aside for seven, for a seven. If it's still unclean, he burns it. Make the connected. Naaman the Syrian is washed in the Jordan River, the river of descending death and judgment, seven times in order to be cleansed of leprosy. So after seven, burn the garment, clean the leper. The blood of Christ cleanses sin, makes garments white. Where am I headed here? Christ entered Jerusalem. On the fourth, or I'm sorry, on the first day, and he sits there, if you will, for four days. That's identical to the Passover feast week. You bring the lamb in, and you leave him in your house for four days. And then he is killed. That lamb is killed. And after four days, Christ gave up his life. At the exact same time that Christ said it is finished, the lamb is killed. He's now entombed for three days and three nights, a total of seven. There's unleavened bread, there's burial spice Friday, unleavened bread is the high Sabbath, um, there's uh, the weekly Sabbath, all that gives me a total of seven, and he raises himself on the eighth day or the first day of the next or the subsequent seven. He's doing everything with respect to, with an understanding of, because he's the designer of the creation week. His crucifixion week is based on his creation week. And you will find the crucifixion in the creation. You will see the fourth day symmetry, for example. That's the easiest place to find it. On the first day of creation, Christ comes to the darkness. He is the light of life, John 8, 12. And he comes to the formless void on the first day of creation. On the second day of creation, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. An expanse that separates the waters from the waters. No time to discuss this. Just to let you understand, if you have a vapor canopy position, I don't believe you can sustain it because of the physics of heat. Um, So that expanse has to be something else. But for today, we'll get into that if you demand it. If you make the other Daniel ask the question. The other Daniel might not be here today, I should point that out. No time again to do it for today. Just understand that the waters are being divided. Why is he dividing waters? He doesn't have to. He takes time to divide waters from waters. Christ is a divider. Did you know that? He separates people from people. What are the waters called in Revelation 17? The angel tells John what the waters are, right? In Genesis... The second day of creation, he divides waters. Think Revelation 17, 15. Christ is separating. He separates wheat from tares. He separates waters from waters. There's a separation. He divides. Um, He's the sharp sword that can separate the soul from the body. The third day of creation, land and organic vegetation. 
are established. On the fourth day, the sun, the moon, and the stars. After four days, there's your Passover pattern. Something happens. First day light. Second day, separation of waters. Third day, land and organic vegetation. Fourth day, sun and moon and stars. Fifth day would correspond to entombment. After four days, the fifth day, living souls abound in the water. Nefesh Kaya. Your Bible might say living creatures. It is not living creatures. It is living souls. Great sea creatures and birds and a blessing to multiply. After the fourth day, on the fifth day, that's not an accident. Lay the template of the creation up against the template of the crucifixion week of the Passover. The sixth day, living souls on earth. So I have living souls in water. Now on the sixth day, I have living souls on earth. And man in the likeness of Elohim, the triune Godhead. Make, let's make man in our image. God created, uh, the, God created in the beginning God. That's Elohim also. So I have the triuneness of the Godhead uh, all over the creation week. Lastly, remember the great rest of the Sabbath day. Okay? Know why God rests. He rests on the seventh day. Is he tired? Gosh, if I had a dime for every time somebody said, well, he rested because he needed a day off. He was exhausted. Good grief. He rests. Why? Know why God rests. Notice that the living souls are created after four days. And Christ chooses to give up his spirit on the high feast day of Passover at 3 p.m. Crucifixion day is the fourth day, which would correspond to sun and moon and stars. Now, high feast day of unleavened bread would be the water living soul day. And burial spice Friday would be the living earth, earth living soul day. So water living soul day and earth living soul day. One corresponds to unleavened bread. The other corresponds to the women making burial spices. Because they can't make burial spices, as you know, on Passover. They can't make them on unleavened bread. So that's Wednesday and Thursday. The only day they can make burial spices is on Friday. They can't do anything on Saturday with them because that's a weekly Sabbath. There's three weekly, there's three Sabbaths in that week. Two of them are high Sabbaths. Can't even function. Finally, they got burial spice day. Did they even need to make the burial spices? No. Nicodemus had already thought of it. Because he was a Pharisee and he knew that he had to do it before Wednesday. Because he would only have Friday. Took us all day. So understand burial spice day. That corresponds to earth living soul day. Unleavened bread corresponds to water living soul day. The seventh day of the weekly Sabbath and the great Sabbath. What did Christ do on the seventh day of his crucifixion week? He knows it corresponds to his Sabbath day, his first Sabbath, his first rest day. What did he do? Okay, let's keep throwing some more stuff at the board. While you still show... Some capability. 
Holy mackerel, honey child. We're going fast now. The judgment seat of Christ and the tribulation, the time of Jacob's troubling, are both seven, seven years, which means they're based on the creation template. Both are occurring simultaneously, as I've said. I propose that the trial of Adam and Eve and Satan is also a seven. All three of those now put together. That and the judgment seat of Christ is likewise a trial. This is a trial, too. I have a trial here and I have a trial here. They're both trials. I know they're trials because Satan is cast out of both of them. So far, so good. It's a court proceeding. Accusations are submitted. Evidence is placed before the court. The seven-year tribulation is filled, by the way, all the way through that. finally blew it. It's filled by... No, it doesn't count. I only got one word. That's not bad. The tribulation is down here. What's the tribulation filled with? Up here I have a trial. I have evidence being presented. I have a procedure. I have proceedings. I have plaintiffs. I have defendants. I have prosecution. I have defense. I have the same thing here on earth. There's a seven-year tribulation on earth. I have two of them going on at the same time. One's in heaven, one's in earth. Two at the same time. One's in heaven, one's on earth. Hopefully that is triggering you to consider something. Seven-year tribulation is filled with evidences, actual, real signs and wonders, not the fake garbage that we see on TV. Real ones. You will be astonished. No one will ever fall for that nonsense that we see all over the place. If you witness this, you'll see what God calls a real sign and a real wonder. There's a testimony from 144,000. There's testimony and evidence from God's two sons of fresh oil, his two witnesses. They're testifying. They're witnesses because this is a court proceeding. This is a court proceeding. The whole Bible is... I used to say, I had a friend here, Jeffy, for a long time. Jeffy came... I won't use his name. He was an attorney in the military. What an advantage he had. He could read the Bible and see that it was a legal document. There's two things you should be to read the Bible easily. One is a lawyer. The other one is a mathematician. The angelic realm is exposed in the tribulation. It's seen. It's heard. Loud voices heard by all of humanity. So two procedures, proceedings, one in heaven, one on earth. Now, back up a bit. The bridegroom has taken his bride to his prepared place. When is the marriage consummated, I ask? On what day? By day, I mean what year? Follow the literal seven-day Jewish wedding pattern. Most scholars conclude that it's on the first day that the wedding is consummated. Who objects to the marriage? On what grounds? We've covered all of that. Now, moving on, Adam and Eve are clothed in blood-stained garments. What am I doing? I'm comparing Genesis 3 with the judgment seat. Why? Why did God do that? Who saw it? Who saw? Who witnessed the trial? Their fig garments are removed and blood-stained garments are put in their place. The fig garments are evidence, as are the blood garments. Evidence of what exactly? The proof of innocence of the bride is also a what? A blood-stained garment. So the proof of the innocence of Adam and Eve is a blood-stained garment, and the proof of innocence of the bride is a blood-stained garment. And that garment is given to the friend who waits. The friend shows the proof of innocence to who? Does Christ need to know that the bride is innocent? 
Do we have to prove it to Christ? We have to wait for the consummation so that Christ knows the bride is really innocent. Whom is the evidence for? It is not for God. He knows all things. He's omniscient. It's not for the judge. It's not for the bridegroom. Both of those are Jesus Christ. Who else is there? Does omniscient God need to be shown the blood linen? No. Does Jesus Christ, omniscient creator, God in the flesh, already know the bride is clean? Yes. He dressed her in white. He doesn't need proof. He is the proof. Of course he knows. Da, 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 da. Who then is the linen for? Who doesn't know? Compare Leviticus 16, which is what? The goat for Azazel. Compare 1 Peter 3.19. For whom is the linen? What is proved by the linen? Linen. Linen. For whom is the proof? If the consummation is completed in the first year and Satan is cast down after the third year, why is the linen released to the friend in the seventh year? Does the linen have a relationship to the goat scarlet cord? Does it put a cord around the goat? It changes. Changes from something to something. What does it change from? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Red to white. What then is the final destination of the linen? Who is it for? Just as you can track and trail the Shekinah glory, the primable light of life through the Bible, so also can you uh, track and trail the garments of blood that you could trace them in the same manner. Think about Rahab and her scarlet robe, for example. And, and again, the trail of Satan. You can do all of this. You can find them and walk them through the Bible. Many have meticulously searched the Scriptures to find all of these. Finally, Cliffside's favorite word, finally. The 7,000 years or the seven millenniums. I can't put it on the board. I'll do it next week. Enoch, or I'm sorry, Eden to Enoch, a thousand years. That's your first seven. Enoch to Abraham, thousand years, that's your second thousand. Abraham to Solomon, thousand years, third. Solomon to Christ, thousand years, fourth. Christ to something, that's your fifth. We have to figure that out. With apologies to Clarence Larkin. And that's something to the end of the Antichrist. There's a thousand years there, and that's the sixth day. And the Antichrist, the end of the Antichrist to the end of seventh, I'm sorry, the end of Satan is the seventh day. And after that is the restoration of all things and the eternal order. Musicians, come while I clean this up. Next week, that's the introduction. I should have recorded you. Whose fault is it? Yes. Next week, we'll clean it up a little bit more. But if you understand these patterns of the sevens, then things in the Bible that are difficult for you become just wide open. That's why it's so important. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you, I can't encourage you enough to, uh, to at least try to get through it. Know a little bit. Next week, it'll get really bad. Today was kind of the introductory, easygoing sermon. Uh, next week, it gets Ridiculous. 
Bring a calculator. It's, it's astronomy. You don't want to know. But he put his pattern everywhere. He put his math everywhere for our sake. 